Good morning, everyone. Good morning. You're all stars. You're all stars. It's, it's the summer holidays. It's a bank holiday weekend. The sun is shining, and you've come to worship God and listen to his word. You're the saints. You're the stars. Do you know, it was no small thing, no coincidence that this service started by seeing our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. Um, in, our, in the prayer meeting this morning that starts at 9.45 in that room first on the left when you come in the main entrance, the lion was roaring this morning. The lion of Judah was roaring as we gathered to pray and to worship. Um, I've got to say, at the end of the prayer meeting, somebody said, I don't need to go to church now. <laughs> um, so, prayer meeting, 9.45. Uh, I'm sure we should start earlier soon, but first room on the left as you come in. Don't miss out. It's beginning to get crowded, but there's still room for you. So, the talk this morning, the last in this series, um, is the title up there. There's a title, Speak, Don't Smack. Or, if you like, Don't Strike, Talk which I hope you think is a good maxim for the problems we're having with our transport industry at the moment. <laughs> Don't strike, talk. Okay. Have you ever had that experience when you do something and everybody says, that's great, that was just such the right thing to do, well done. And then a bit later, sometime later, maybe a few weeks, a few months, even years later, you do exactly the same thing again. And it's like, no, that was awful, that was terrible, that was so bad, that was so wrong, you're going to be really in the stick because of that. Have you ever had that experience? No, probably not. No, good, be blessed, because that's what happened to Moses. And that is the stranger thing that we're going to be looking at this morning. And we're, so we're with Moses again in this series, and we're going to be reading in a moment from Exodus 17, but let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you love every person here. Thank you that we can say in our own hearts, God loves me. Father, thank you for the extent of your love. It's so wide, so high, so deep. We'll never get over it. Father, thank you that you're here this morning and it, you're desiring to speak to us through your word and by your spirit. It's your desire to speak to us. So Lord, we want to honor you by opening our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear and respond to your word this morning, whether it's something that Brian says while he's going on at the front or whether it's your Holy Spirit just speaking quietly in the gaps into our hearts. Lord, in the words of Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And please help Brian in Jesus' name and for his kingdom in our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So we read from Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin. It's not Sin as in Sin, that's Sin as in Sinai, actually. Traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. 
Why do you put the Lord... Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The context here is that after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God has used Moses to lead the people out of slavery and across the Red Sea to take on take possession of the promised land. And 12 spies are sent to see what it's like. They go for 40 days. They come back and 10 of them say, it was full of giants. We felt like grasshoppers. There's no way we could ever take that land away from them. And just two spies told the truth. Do you know who they were? Well done, yes. Joshua and Caleb. And they said, we can surely do it with God's help. But who did the people believe? Joshua and Caleb? No. They disbelieved. They were full of unbelief towards Joshua and Caleb. And, as a, and they decided they wouldn't go. And as a consequence of their disbelief, the people are going to now spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness until this generation has passed away. And it will be a new generation, a newborn generation who were born in the wilderness who will take possession of the promised land. And I believe that when revival comes, when renewal comes, when we see a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a great ingathering of precious souls, it will be the young who will be in the strategic forefront of that. I had the privilege this week of interviewing a beautiful young Christian. I serve, it's a, it's a joy of mine, a privilege, I serve as a trustee of Sutton School's work. And we were interviewing for a new senior secondary school's worker. We have six workers. Isn't that amazing? This town, Sutton, has six Christians who go into schools. And we were interviewing for a new one. We'd advertised, we got no applicants. And at the last moment, a phone call from somebody in East Grinstead. And they filled this profile perfectly, full of passion, full of love for Jesus, full of young, for peop young people, great communicator, great with social media, only thing, very young, only 22, only been a Christian for two years. Oh. But the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear what Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. And the other trustees agree with me, so we've appointed Ella as a new worker for Sutton School's work. It will be the new young people who will lead the revival. You wait. This was early 
in the wilderness years. Forty years later, the same problem. Just over the page in Numbers, 40 years later in the final year in the wilderness, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam, Moses' older sister, who probably was the one that pulled him out of the, the Nile, she died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron, they did the right thing. They went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. Good so far. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels! Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and the livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough, to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Yes, take the rod, it's a sign of your authority and of my presence with you, but speak. Your words, Moses, are enough. I want to show my glory. I want to show that I am holy, that I am, that I am all, that I am enough. And I want to show that you are my appointed leader. You are my appointed chief. And what did Moses do? He decided to strike the rock. And decisions have consequences. God had promised his people the gift of a land, a good land, a fertile land, a beautiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But Moses, you're not going. Really? Really? Because of one little slip up, I mean, one smack with a stick, well, two actually, you're out. No ifs, no buts, no appeal. I mean, this wasn't just anyone, was it? This was Moses. 
I mean, look at his track record. At the risk of his life, he's faced up to Pharaoh, a complete despotic monarch, as it were. I mean, not just once, but ten times, he keeps going back to Pharaoh at the risk of his life. He's led people through the sea. I mean, do you know, I always remember I went to the very first Alpha Conference in 1992, and I always remember Sandy Miller, who was the vicar then, and Nicky Gumbel was the curate, and, and Sandy Miller talking about how bringing our friends to Jesus is a, is a partnership between God and us. And he talked about Moses. Moses with the Pharaoh's armies on, on, with their chariots coming, clickety-clack. And, and, and Moses says, what am I going to do? And God says, stand at the side of the sea and hold out your stick. And Sandy Miller does it like this. He says, do I have to? Do I have to? I'm going to feel really silly standing there waving my stick. And it's like God says, you do your bit, Moses, and I'll do my bit. This is Moses. He led the people through the sea as if it was dry land. And he led them through 40 years in the desert. I mean, and by tradition, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I mean, and he's not a young man. Do you know how old Moses was when he began the ministry God had prepared him for? Anyone? 80. I'll raise you. Good start. (laughs) He was 40 years a prince in Egypt and 40 years on the backside of the desert. He was 80 when God called him into the ministry for which he'd been preparing him for 80 years. So how old is he now? Do the math. He's 120. He's still going strong. And it's not like he was a proud man who was a bit up himself and needed taking down a peg. Who's a bit quick on their phone on Google? Come on, hands up. Who's, who's got their phone out? It's good on Google. Great. Go, Cam. I want you to Google. Nobody else. Just Cam. Who is the most humble man, person on the face of the earth? Just ask Google. And surely, he's done worse things. Not the rest of you, pay attention. <laughs> you know, he's done worse things, hasn't he? What's he done? He, he murdered two Egyptian guards, didn't he? God went to the trouble of carving out ten commandments on tablets of stone. He gave them to Moses. What did Moses do? He broke them. He threw them on the ground. And it's not like he was a proud person, up, you know, that was sort of up himself. Who's the most humble person on the face of the earth? Thomas Holt. No. <laughs> no. What did he say? It's Moses. He was mucking about. Well, have you? <laughs> Even Google knows. Moses is, tells us in Numbers 12.3 the most humble person on the face of the earth. This is Moses. I mean, when his siblings, you know, Aaron and and Miriam, criticised him because they didn't like his choice of wife, God called the three of them to the house, to to the tent of meeting. Okay? And look at what he says. Should come up on the screen. Listen to my words. This is God speaking. When a prophet is among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. 
What an awesome thing to have God say about you. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This is just, I mean, this isn't a nobody, is it? This is Moses. And all he did was a couple of smacks with a stick. And now he's never going to set foot in the promised land. He's never going to go there. Is this fair? Is this reasonable? Seems incredibly harsh, wouldn't you agree? Strange. Very strange. And it makes little sense on the face of it. But we have to look beyond the face of it. We have to look and see the bigger picture, the higher purpose, the greater story. Do you remember that word that Jason used a few weeks ago, semiotic? Perhaps it comes from the same root as semaphore because it means a sign. This story, this two stories, this account of Moses and water coming from the rock, it's for us. These things are written for us. Paul explains that in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10. He summarizes this whole bit of history. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And then he explains it at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as examples, as models, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. What's the fulfillment of the ages? Jesus. Got that one right. Well done. As Sam said just a couple of weeks ago, we must look into the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. You know, the Bible's amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's not a book. It's a library. That's what the word means. It's 66 books written by about 40 different authors over about 1,500 years, six different countries in two different languages. But there is a melody that runs right through from the first page to the last. Do you know what that melody is? It's Jesus. And against that melody are set harmonies. There are harmonies like Joseph, the life story of Joseph in the Old Testament, or Boaz, or Daniel, or David, or Moses. These are harmonies. What does a harmony do? It deepens. I should be asking Karen, because sorry, Harriet, because she's a musician. She knows what harmony is. It deepens. It enriches. It adds meaning and lusciousness. Sometimes a melody is nothing without the harmonies. The Bible is a symphony in two movements, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And there's a dynamic relationship between the two. We would say the Old, no, the new is in the old concealed. And the old is, as we're seeing now, in the new revealed. God's dealing with Moses seems 
unduly harsh, totally unreasonable, until you see what it's pointing forward to. Paul tells us the rock represents Jesus. God intended this event that it would be for our instruction a picture of his son. When God instructed Moses in the first instance to strike the rock, his purpose was to establish a picture of Jesus, stricken, beaten, slain. In the striking of the rock, the father is seeing forward to his one and only beloved son being loaded with our sin, our disobedience, our punishment, broken on a cross. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, we're told that Christ, our rock and cornerstone, would be struck, bruised, wounded, killed for our sake. But that through his death, he would bring forth streams of living water, new life, healing, salvation, eternal life. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we are told, for example, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And in Romans 6.10, again, the death he died to sin once for all. And in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, the writer referring back to the sacrifices in the temple, he writes, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. So this is the writer to the Hebrews, which always sounds like it ought to be in the Old Testament, doesn't it? It's in the New Testament. And he's referring back to the sacrifices in the temple back in Old Testament times. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You know, the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is, to, is for us to understand and know that Jesus is the high priest to end all high priests. Because he made a, the final atoning sacrifice to completely cover the sins of humanity. And so for all who will come to him in faith, he's able to cleanse, forgive, to save completely, to save to the uttermost. This here in 1 Corinthians 10 that we're reading is actually the third time the writer of the Hebrews speaks of Jesus sitting down. What's the significance of sitting down? It must be important because he said it three times. When do you sit? You sit when you're finished, when the job is completed. It is finished. Jesus sat down because the work of sacrifice 
of making purification, of making atonement, of at-one-ment, for us to be able to be at one, to be reconciled with God. That work had been completed. He did the work instead of me, instead of you. He took the pain instead of me taking it. He took the punishment instead of you taking it. He was our substitute. I was chatting recently to a couple of lovely Muslim lads. I say lads, they were in there about their mid-twenties, I suppose, late, something like that, mid-twenties. And I was chatting to them in the park. I sat down next to them in Manor Park at the top at Sutton. And I, I said, um, can I chat to you for a few minutes? And I noticed they both had a spliff <laughs> and on. And um, the first thing he said was, um, oh, you're not a police, are you? <laughs> And I said, no, no, I just, want to, I just want to show you this picture. And I showed them this, this picture. I said, have you ever seen this picture before? This is Jesus at the door. He's, he's Jesus at the door of your heart. And do you see the handle? He said, yeah. He said, I, I know about this picture or one like it. The handle's on the inside, isn't it? You, yeah, I said, yeah. You have to open the door. And this is, this is from something called Jesus at the door. It's a very simple but effective gospel presentation that was a fellow at um, Causeway Vineyard uh, in Coleraine, uh, Scott McNamara. He, he worked this up. And it's a very... I used to use something called the bridge illustration, which takes me about an hour. But this takes about five or six minutes to just explain the gospel. Jesus at the door. And I was seeking to share it with these two Muslim lads. And incidentally, guess what? There's an app called Jesus at the Door, or just J-A-D. And there's a book called Jesus at the Door. And Scott McNamara worked for years with Coleraine, uh, just out and about, talking to people, beginning with, have you seen this picture before? And we had a great conversation, these Muslim, there was Ali and there was Nawaf, and we had a great conversation for about an hour, actually. And... Um, the crux of the conversation was that they, they, know, you know, they know a lot about Jesus. They know he's a prophet. They know he's going to come again. But they have a real problem with Jesus died and suffered for me, for you, to take our sin so that we don't have to suffer. He explained to me, that's not fair. It's not fair that somebody else should do the work for me. I pray this prayer and this prayer and this prayer 33 times a day. And because I do that 33 times a day, I'm going to paradise. He was absolutely, absolutely sure about it. And I said, so you, without using the term substitutionary sacrifice, I said, you, so you don't accept that? He said, no. I said, do you know the story about Abraham and Isaac and, and uh, Abraham being required to sacrifice Isaac and of course knows all about it and I said so and God supplied the the ram is that what God you know it was a substitute I said so you've decided that it, substitutionary sacrifice or worse to that effect aren't fair ah so you've put your so God's ordained in scripture substitutionary sacrifice but you've put yourself above that is that right and so many people do so many people, not just Muslims, believe I've got to make it on my own because I'm, I'm a higher authority than God. I won't accept Jesus dying for my sins. As it says in Hebrews 12 verse 2, these young men that I was speaking to need to fix their eyes on Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and for the fourth time now, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you think it gives Jesus joy when you turn away from sin? When you break with a bad habit, when you put away wrong thoughts or prideful attitudes, do you know he has more joy even than you? Imagine a doctor, a highly qualified, independently wealthy doctor who chooses to go to remote tribes in the jungle to heal their many diseases but they will have none of it. And then after months and months, a couple of brave young men, close to death, come in desperation to him. And he tends them, and he heals them, and they go away rejoicing. How does he feel? With every sick person who comes for his help, his joy, increases. It's why he came. Your repentance brings him joy. God intended Moses to strike the rock in the desert as a sign once. Once and once only. That first passage, Exodus 17, points to it, pre-configures Jesus, sacrificed once to bring us full salvation. On the second occasion, the Lord instructed Moses to only speak to the rock. Why the difference? Because it wasn't necessary for Christ to be struck, to suffer twice or repeatedly. But it was necessary to preserve the picture, the model, the metaphor, the type which God had created on the first occasion. By Moses striking the rock a second time, he disrupted the picture that God had already created. So, to ensure that we are left with a clear understanding, it was necessary for God to make a point. It was necessary for God to rebuke Moses for our sake. As a consequence, Moses never got to lead the people into the promised land. Who did? Louder. You're going to get it right. Joshua. Yes. And Joshua, do you know what his name means? It's Yahweh Shua. God saves. And do you know what Jesus' name is in Hebrew? Before we Latinized it into Jesus? It's the same. <laughs> And so, a moment, what does Moses represent? Theologically, what do you associate with Moses? The law. Thank you. The law. By barring Moses from entering the promised land, God gave us a sign that we cannot enter the promised land. We cannot enter new life, salvation, through the law, through works. There is only by Yeshua. It is Yeshua, Jesus, who leads us 
into the promised land of salvation. There is no other name by which we must be saved, but all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We must also see that for Moses, this was a test. What sort of test? Yeah, it was a test of faith. Yeah. It would be, if I speak, water's going to come out of the rock? Oh, come on. Do you believe? Do you believe if Moses had got it right, if he had just spoken, would water have come out of the rock? Come on, hands up. Hands up, who believes that if Moses had just spoken, water would have come out of the rock? Thank you. Hands down. I want you to remember that. Because it was, what was it that prevented Moses from striking the rock? Well, somewhere in there was unbelief. Somewhere was in there was, I'm going to, a bit like Sandy Miller's illustration, I'm going to look so stupid. If I stand there and speak to the rock and nothing happens, I'm going to look so silly. I don't believe it's going to happen. I don't believe God. There was unbelief. Satan traps us in unbelief. And the Lord wants to make a sweep. In the, in the prayer meeting this morning, there was a picture about sweeping. The Lord wants to sweep. And I believe he wants to sweep away unbelief. The Lord was saying to Moses, will you show that I am holy? Will you show that I am enough? Will you show that I am trustworthy? I am faithful. The Lord wants to sweep away unbelief. Sure, it was a test of faith. But supremely, it was a test of obedience. Faith is great. But ultimately, in the kingdom of God, what counts is obedience surrendering to the sovereignty of God he is God and I am not he's the boss but you know he's not a bossy boss <clears throat> there are 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John but there's only one point where Jesus reveals his heart do you know where that is? it's where he says come to me all you that are weary and heavy laden he goes on, for I am gentle in heart. That's a great book, actually, Gentle and Lowly in Heart by Dan Ortland. If you've got nothing else to read, read Dan Ortland, Gentle and Lowly in Heart. Would you like to have a boss who's gentle and lowly in heart? You know, if Jesus hosted his own website, the drop-down about me would have at the top, Gentle and Lowly in heart. Do you love Jesus? Do you like to feel that you love Jesus? Do you sing, I want to see you? Well, Jesus said, he who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and show myself to them. I've said this before up here, not for a while. I love Julie. I really, really love Julie. And because of that, 
It's easy to do things for her. It's easy. It's easy to do what she asks me to do because I really love her. If you love him, you will obey him. If heaven's equivalent of Ofsted came and did an inspection, invisibly followed you around for a week or two, would their report back to heaven be, this is an obedient servant who loves Jesus? Think about it. I mean, let's face it, if a hot shot like Moses didn't make it into the promised land, perhaps we do need to get serious about what it means to call Jesus Lord. What does it mean when someone is your Lord? It means you listen. You listen for their instructions. And when you hear their instructions, you don't set them aside. You obey them to the letter because they are Lord. That's what the word means. You know, God was ready to take Moses to another level where his very words would have physical power and be seen to have power. He was ready to take him to a further level of spirituality, authority and intimacy with God. Is the Lord waiting for you to take you up a level? Is he waiting to see your obedience, your faithfulness in what he has already entrusted to you? Do you remember the parable of the talents? The one who had ten? Used them well. What happened? He got more. If you're faithful, if you carry well, you're given more. Are you carrying well what Father has already entrusted to you, your income, your wealth, your time, possessions, gifts, relationships, the opportunities that he presents to you. You know, many Christians go in circles, just like the people did in the Old Testament. Times of closeness to God and then falling away and being distracted and then going after other things, but then thinking, oh no, I really do want to walk with God and believe in him and everything. They go in circles. Where's the test? Is it down here when you're feeling really, really lousy and terrible and you want to repent? No. The test is at the top. Can you maintain this level? Can you stay faithful with what God has already entrusted to you and walk with him in obedience? The test is at the top. Will you carry well, steward well, be an obedient pair of hands? And as with Moses... The test is at the top of your faith level. God was testing Moses at the top of his faith level. He'd done many amazing things before. Look out for the moment when God is testing you at the top of your faith level. I've shared before how when I was just 25, God tested me at the top of my faith level. He told me to give up my job, go and be a student, mortgage will go to 15%, doesn't matter, Trust me, God will test you at the top of your faith level because that's when he's going to take you to a higher level. Do you imagine that the great faith-filled, risk-taking saints of the past, the George Muller, Mother Teresa, Lord Shaftesbury, do you think they were born like that? No, God led them a step at a time. He took them to higher levels through faith-stretching, obedience-confirming tests. 
at each succeeding level. Hold the level so he can take you to a higher level and entrust more to you, more gifts, more resources, more authority. Finally, and you know what that means. It usually means nothing, but it really is finally. <laughs> no, we don't hit the rock. We don't hurt the rock. We speak to it. We speak to him. We may fellowship with him. We may know him. We may listen, abide, live united to him in union. Perhaps Anna and the worship team would like to start making their way forward. You know, the, uh, it's, it's, as I've read the scripture, I've, I've seen recently what the real central idea of Paul's letters is. He's got lots of amazing ideas. You know, justification by faith, that's great. But the real of Paul's epistles is in two words, in Christ, by which he means being united with Christ. Are you united, living united with Christ? That's his offer. Share my life. If you share my life, it is the one, if he who shares my life and whose life I share, he it is who proves fruitful. Share my life, Jesus says. Let me share yours. Why did Moses hit the rock? Maybe he was in a fit of anger because it was all getting to him. I mean, he was 120. But the anger wasn't the offence. The offence was that he didn't honour God. He didn't trust and he didn't obey. And as we used to sing as children, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.